What do you see? Are your eyes open? Are you awake? What do you see? Last week, our family was hanging out, and um, we were out in this park, and Sarah told, told our little boys, uh, she said, look up at the clouds and, and tell me, like, what shapes do you see up there in the clouds? Do you remember when you used to do that? Right now, we know all the technical names for them, but we've lost our imagination of seeing things in the clouds. But she said, you know, tell us what you see up there. And uh, it was funny to hear their different answers, and uh, Luke spoke up. And he said, uh, that, that cloud up there, it has like the head of a frog, but with antlers. And he said, and the body of a snowman. I'm like, that's going to haunt me in my dreams right there. All right. Perspective. What do you see? A different way of seeing things. Last night, uh, at halftime of the game, it was awesome to see the legend, the GOAT, Michael Jordan himself, come out at halftime and give an inspirational speech. And somewhere at the end of his inspirational speech, he said, the ceiling is the roof. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. I'm inspired, but I'm confused. All right. Perspective. I'm still trying to figure that one out. All right. Perspective. What do you see? Are your eyes open? Are you awake? I'm praying that throughout this series that God will challenge us to have our eyes open. That he'll awaken us. That so many times we rely on distractions in our lives to hypnotize us. Right? We keep waving these distractions in front of our face to hypnotize us. That are, They're telling us you're very sleepy. And it's putting us to sleep, but I'm praying that God will wake us up through this time. Today is the first Sunday of the Christian season of Lent. And Lent is a time of a dramatic shift in perspective. It's where we turn our view to the cross. The cross comes into view for us. And part of our journey in that, of following Jesus to the cross, is that we we embrace these intentional practices of repentance, of realizing the place where our hearts need to be turned to God and surrendered to God. And we also embrace this practice of fasting, of fasting. And here's the thing about fasting. Fasting will make you hungry. Somebody write that down. (laughs) Fasting will make you hungry. I know that's like the the most simplest thought ever, but, but think about it on this level. Fasting will make you hungry. That when you remove certain distractions from your life, certain things that you rely on, certain things that you reach for to keep you numb, to help you cope, to distract you, then it will begin to make you hungry for the real thing in your life. That's what fasting is designed to do. It's not, as we said last week, it's not for you to have control over food. That's not the case. It's about surrender to God. It's about surrender to God. And every time... You have that desire for that thing that you're fasting from. It's this confrontation and it's this reminder. It's this provoking to reach for him, to let him be your first love, your deepest hunger in your life. That's what fasting is about. That's what the season of Lent is about. It's a dramatic shift in our perspective 
as the cross comes into view, we're confronted with our own frailty and our own desperate need for God. That's what we're going to be looking at today. We're in uh, the book of Matthew in chapter 16, and we are at a turning point in the gospel of Matthew here in this passage. We're going to look at verses 13 through 26, and you will see right in the middle of this, you will see the shift as we, as we move into a different part of the book of Matthew, of the gospel. This is the hinge point of the gospel of Matthew right here that we're going to be reading through together. So read with me, uh, starting with verse 13 in chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is, referring to himself? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. The son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by humans, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now, here's the hinge point. Here's the turning point as we move into the the next part of the Gospel of Matthew in this very next verse. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day, be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. And whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Amen. Jesus, help us today as we unpack these words, these confrontational words, these controversial words, these words that are quintessential to this journey of Lent and this shift in our perspective. God, we pray that you would make it clear today that you would speak. And just like you challenged your disciples on that day, you would challenge us. We're your disciples. We are followers of you. We surrender to you. We commit that to you. And we ask that you would challenge us and provoke us today. So in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So. The passage, the first half of this passage, we get this this moment where Jesus asks his disciples, who are the people saying that I am? And then he confronts them even more personally. Yeah, but who do you say that I am? The setting here is really interesting. Caesarea Philippi. 
Caesarea Philippi. I, I was thinking as I'm reading through this, you know, like British scholars and stuff. If you have a British accent, you can say anything and sound really smart. If you have a southern accent, you're like Caesarea Philippi. <laughs> so try not to be distracted by that, okay? Caesarea Philippi is this, is this town where, where Jesus makes this confrontational statement. And the setting of this is important, okay? Because in this ancient city, prior to the time of Jesus, it actually uh, was named for the god Pan, which is a Greek god, the god of nature. And so there was still a shrine there to this Greek god. And, and, and the city was, that was a part of the fabric of that city, that history there, and, and having been named for that god prior to this. Now the name had been changed, and now it was named in honor of one of the Caesars of Rome. And there was also a temple there in honor of the Caesar, okay? And so in this kind of setting, with all of this religious symbolism around him, Jesus confronts his disciples with this question of his identity. Who am I? Against this backdrop of competing allegiances, who am I? He asks them. Who am I? Who do they say that I am? Well, well, the people say that you're John the Baptist, or which is kind of creepy because John the Baptist had already been put to death at this point. They say, you're the spirit of John the Baptist, come back. Or you're Elijah, the spirit of Elijah returned to the people of Israel. Or Jeremiah, or one of the great prophets. And they had this sense about Jesus that he was paving the way for the coming of the Messiah. All of those people were associated with that kind of imagery, paving the way for this new movement of God, for this new revelation of God. And Jesus says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up. And with this wisdom that is given to him from God himself, this awakening that happens in the heart of Peter, this revelation that happens, and he's able to see clearly. And he says, you are the Christ. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're not just preparing the way for the one we've been waiting for. You are the one. You're the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. What a statement. What a statement. And to this day, Christians around the world still repeat this confession at their baptism. Have you ever noticed us do that? And we ask people when we're baptizing them, repeat after me. I believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God. It's based off of this confession. The first time that confession is made by one of the believers in Jesus, by one of his disciples. It's such a powerful moment. We believe that you are the Christ. And Jesus says on this confession, I am the rock, Jesus says, and he changes Peter's name to, to Peter, which means rock. And on the rock of this confession, I will build my church. I'm the cornerstone. I'm the foundation. But piece by piece, I will build with the rock of this confession. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He says, powerful moment. Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? You need to wrestle with that. Some of you today, you're not going to hear anything else because the Holy Spirit's going to nag you for the rest of the sermon about that question. Listen. Listen. 
Who do you say that he is? As it transitions into this turning point and this shift that we've been talking about here, this shift, a dramatic shift in perspective, changes the whole trajectory of the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. This is the turning point. From that time on, Jesus began to teach his disciples that he must die. That he would be going to Jerusalem and he would be put to death at the hands of the religious establishment, but that three days later, he would be raised back to life. And Peter, it says, pulls him aside, fresh off of this, this, high, this high of making this confession, right? Peter pulls him aside, and he begins to counsel him and even rebuke him. And he says, never, Lord, we're not going to let that happen to you. You've got to stop talking like this. We're not going to let that happen. This can't happen to you. Never, Lord. Never, Lord. Peter could not see this dramatic shift in perspective this quintessential lent moment where the cross comes into view and it becomes clear what it means when we make the confession that jesus is the christ it means that we also have to embrace the cross if we confess that jesus is the christ then we also have to embrace the cross and this is a turning point moment peter has this disorienting radically reordering moment of his life. It is a crisis moment for him, but it becomes an awakening moment for all of us as we're confronted with this truth. He rebukes Jesus. See, because here's the deal. Here's, Here's why he was rebuking Jesus. Before, when he confessed that Jesus was the Christ and the Messiah, as many of you know, the idea in the Jewish mindset was that the Messiah would be this great military leader that the Messiah would come and would overthrow the the oppressive powers. And so they saw the Roman government as the oppressive power of the day. And in fact, the Roman government was an oppressive power over the people of Israel. And they were awaiting the arrival of the Messiah to set them free. Just like God had delivered them from Egypt, just like God had delivered them from exile, that he was coming back and the Messiah would lead them to victory over their enemies. So Peter is thrilled at this fact that Jesus is the Messiah, and Peter is thrilled at his association with that because he knows he's got a seat close to the one of power. And so all of these imaginations are running through Peter's head of what this is going to mean for him and what it means for him to be associated with the strength of the Messiah. But Jesus reveals to us that often we want to hide behind our strength, but Jesus calls us into frailty. We want to hide behind our strength, but he is calling us into frailty. And in his frailty, he actually reveals his strength. Alexander the Great is one of the greatest military leaders in the history of the world, conquers all of these armies undefeated against all of these armies that he faces tries to go out and conquer the world. We still remember him because of his military success and his military might. But historians believe that he most likely died from malaria, which probably comes from a mosquito bite. One of the great military leaders in the history of humanity taken out by a mosquito bite. We want to hide behind our strength because we're afraid of our own frailty. 
Jesus, on the other hand, is the opposite story. He's this penniless preacher. He looks like a nobody. He's put on trial as a criminal. He's executed in a display of Roman power in a way that is designed to be humiliating to him and to put down any movement that would want to rise up in his name. But the gates of Hades cannot prevail against him. And in his frailty, we see his strength and our strength as well. This is it. When the cross comes into view, it's disorienting for us. It reorders the way we see the world. We need an awakening. We need an opening of our eyes. And the cross does that for us in a shocking kind of way. Like Peter, we often try to, use, we try to reason with Jesus, right? And we try to navigate a different way around the cost of it. And we try to reason with him and say, listen, there's got to be some kind of alternative strategy here. There's got to be another way. But Jesus says, I am the way and the way leads through a cross. And if you want to follow me, it means embracing the cross. We operate out of self-preservation, but Jesus calls us into self-denial. This is the message of Lent and it's the challenge of the cross. So when Peter comes to him and he says this, then Jesus has the response, get behind me, Satan. That's a bad day for Peter right there. Imagine Jesus saying that to you. All right, you're like, all right, I'm going home now. Okay, been fun. Thank you. Get behind me, Satan. Why does Jesus say such a harsh thing to him? Because this is a return of the very temptation that Jesus had already experienced in the desert. Satan had already, had already tempted him with this very same thing, promising him a way out, promising him that he didn't have to go to the cross, that he could do it in another way that would bring glory to himself and everybody would see the glory of Jesus, but he knew he was headed for the cross. Now, Peter comes back with the very same temptation and he recognizes the voice Jesus does. He says, get behind me, Satan. This is going to cost everything. I'm going to the cross and there is no alternative route. There is no way around it. And our salvation depends on that. Jesus goes on to say, not only am I headed to the cross, but if anyone wants to come after me. They must be willing to take up the cross. To deny themselves and take up the cross. It's not encouraging doesn't sound very encouraging, but he says this is the heart of the gospel. And this is what it means. If you say I am the Christ, then you must embrace my cross. If you embrace the confession, then you've got to embrace the cost that comes along with that confession. It's a moment of crisis for Peter that becomes a moment of awakening. And it's a moment of awakening for us. Peter had been distracted by his own dreams of what the Messiah would do and what his role would be in that. He had numbed himself with illusions and he had hypnotized himself with the hope of power. But what Jesus presented was so disorienting to him. He couldn't even see it coming. It was a dramatic shift of perspective. And he's saying the same thing to us today. There's a, a researcher, he's a prolific researcher and really well-respected. His name is George Barna. And in 2011, 
he presented research that his, his company, Barner Research Group, had spent six years collecting. They interviewed 15,000 Americans with the hope of getting a grasp on what the spiritual landscape of America was. And so they asked them the, these questions to see where they stood in relation to Christianity. And what he found was this. Out of those 15,000 people that they talked to, they recognized what Barna calls 10 transformational stops of where people are in the landscape of their relationship to Jesus. Here's what he found. Number one, the first stop is that they were unaware of sin. 1% of the population said that they were unaware of sin. The second is indifferent to sin. 16% of the population identified with that, that they were indifferent to sin. The third, worried about sin. 39% of the population said that they are worried about sin, the reality of sin. This is where we begin to see the first moments of awakening right here, where the Holy Spirit is convicting the hearts of people You can't even become aware of your own desperate need for God unless grace is revealing that to you. And we see grace revealing that in the hearts of people here. Uh, Number four, forgiven of sin. 9% of the population said that they fell there. Uh, Number five, forgiven of sin and involved in church activities. That was 24% of the population. Then it begins to shift. To this point, up to number five, we've got 89% of people saying that they fall right there, somewhere on that first half of the board. Let's keep moving. Number six, 6% of the population said that they resonated with this idea of holy discontent, that there was something in their hearts, this sense of dissatisfaction that, yes, they'd experienced the forgiveness of sin, they had prayed the prayer for forgiveness, they have plugged in at their churches and they're involved, but for some reason there is still this deep sense of dissatisfaction, this holy discontent that is beginning to stir in their hearts. Number seven, broken by God, 3%. Number eight, surrender and submission, 1%. Number nine, profound love for God, one half of 1%. And number 10, profound love for others. One half of 1%. Only 11% of the population falls on that second half of the board. I think that what we see here is a map of awakening. Where are you on the board? Let's keep that up for the rest of the, of the message. Where are you on this board? Where do you see yourself? What resonates with you? Let that challenge you. We're going to keep that up for the next few minutes here for the rest of the message. I want to speak specifically to those of you who would identify with this moment of holy discontent, with this sense of dissatisfaction. You prayed the prayer for forgiveness. You're plugged in with the church. You're involved. You're volunteering. You're busying yourself with activity within the church. But for some reason, there is still this sense of dissatisfaction in you. And you try to keep it at bay. 
by distracting yourself, maybe with more church activities, maybe with other things. You're trying to keep it at bay with coping mechanisms or with numbing habits because you're afraid to listen in to what the dissatisfaction is telling you. You're afraid to pause long enough to listen. You're afraid to let your soul get quiet because you're afraid of where this dissatisfaction is going to take you. There's a sense of fear in you about that. You have this sense that maybe it's leading you towards a radical reordering of your life, that it's going to take you beyond a prayer of forgiveness and it's going to demand of you a life of surrender and submission. And you don't really want to go there. You would prefer to stay distracted so you don't have to pay attention to why you're dissatisfied. The reality of it is you're afraid to die. You're afraid to die. As the old saying goes, everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. That's where consumer Christianity steps in and makes you all kind of promises about heaven, but doesn't say a word about dying. But Jesus confronts that with the truth of the cross. And he says very plainly, this journey will lead you right through the cross. And if you want to follow me, you have to lay down your life. You have to deny yourself and you have to take up the cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a great theologian, we quote him often here. He said that the gospel bids you come and die. The gospel bids you come and die. Our confession that Jesus is the Christ requires that we embrace the cross. Our confession that Jesus is the Christ becomes for us this all-consuming yes that unleashes in our lives a thousand smaller no's. Sarah and I uh, started dating almost, well, 15 years ago now. Wow, that's crazy. Sarah and I started dating about 15 years ago. And uh, when I finally got the courage to ask her out on a date, uh, I really wanted to impress her. So I took her to the nicest restaurant I could possibly afford, Applebee's. Yes. All right. And uh, that, that probably didn't impress her too much. So I felt like I needed to make up for that on the second date. And so for the second date, I wanted to take her on this really romantic experience And as I watched these romantic movies, it seemed like ice skating seemed to do the trick, okay? So I'm like, all right, I want to take her ice skating. So we lived in separate towns, and I had a friend that lived in the same town as her. So I said to him, Tim, hey, you got to help me out, buddy. I want to take Sarah skating. Where is there a skating rink there in that town? And so he seemed a little confused by that and a little worried about my approach. But he said, here's where it is. Here's the address. This is before you Googled things, okay? That's how old I am, all right? And um, so I'm like, okay, so I get the address. And so we go, and uh, I'm excited. We pick her up for the date, drive to the skating rink. And as I pull into the parking lot, I realized there had been a major breakdown in communication. And I didn't specify what kind of skating I was thinking of because there on the roof of the building was a giant neon roller skate. And uh, she's a good sport, so she went along with it, all right? I was hoping for like this romantic movie moment, but instead it was like middle school birthday party, okay? 
Nothing says romance like the chicken dance in a disco ball, okay? <laughs> From there, our relationship continued and we committed our lives to each other. And on our wedding day, we stood there and we made vows to each other. And we said yes to each other. And in that moment of saying yes to each other, we also unleashed a thousand smaller no's. We committed in that day that by saying yes to each other, we were saying no to everyone else. We were saying no to countless other things in our lives because this was our commitment to each other. The same is true for our relationship with Jesus. He calls for us in that confession that we make. You are the Christ. He calls for us to make an all-consuming yes to him. And it unleashes a thousand smaller no's. It's no mistake that Jesus makes this declaration against that backdrop of the competing religious allegiances. Who do you say I am? And now, if you believe that, take up your cross and follow me. He calls us into a life of self-denial. But he tells us that self-denial is not really about the self. It's confessing that Jesus is everything. It's not built around ourselves. It's built around him. He is my yes, and everything else falls under his rule and under his reign. Are you willing to lean into that sense of dissatisfaction you have in your life? Perhaps it comes from a challenge that Jesus is putting in front of you. Perhaps you are just on the other side of an awakening. You're going to be tempted to stay asleep because it's easier that way. But maybe the crisis that you're experiencing is an invitation into awakening. As you fast, will you commit to listen to the hunger? Will you commit to listen to the desire that it's pointing to in you? Will you commit to surrender and to submit? This is our wake-up call. And Jesus puts it right in front of us. If you want to come after me, if you want to make the confession that I'm the Christ, then follow me. Take up your cross. It's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything. But if you're willing to lose your life for me, you will find it. You will find it. We're going to close our time together in communion. And it's a reminder to us that Jesus makes this promise that he is the bread of life. The thing that we are most hungry for. So here in this season of Lent, when we're fasting, when we're repenting, we come to the table. And we recognize that Jesus claims to be the bread of life, the very thing that we are the most hungry for. But he also says that the bread must be broken. This is my body, he told his disciples, broken for you. And unless my body is broken, you cannot eat it. And this is my blood, he says, as he took the cup from the table poured out for the salvation of the world. If you want to come after me, 
then you must embrace my death and embrace it as your salvation. Today, as we share in communion, we want to challenge you to remember what this means. It means that you are embracing the death of Jesus Christ as your salvation, as your hope for salvation. Some of you might want to embrace that for the very first time today. You are welcome to come to his table and to embrace his salvation for you. For others of us, this is a reminder of what our yes means. It's a reminder of what it means to follow him and to confess that he is Christ. It means that everything about us comes under his rule and reign. It means that we embrace what he has done for us and that we participate in his death as we die to ourselves. That is the invitation of the table. And if you're prepared to receive that invitation and to submit to that invitation, then we invite you to come forward this morning. There'll be two stations, one here and one here. And if you need a gluten-free option, then that will be available on this side. Jesus, thank you. You are the bread of life. You are the hope of the world. But even this imagery of the bread being broken reminds us of the cost of the confession that we make to you. It costs you everything to rescue us. And we commit to you that we will surrender everything to follow you. So in your name we pray.